What's going on, Asymmetry? What's up, everybody? How you doing? Lime and I recently took the covered wagon on another ride across the country, and one of the things that we realized as we were going through all of the common trials and tribulations of our journey was that probably not many people really understand what all goes into a covered wagon. And um, we obviously had a lot of time to kill on the road. And because Lime is an electrical, nuclear, and audio engineer, we had the freedom to <laughs> dialogue and explore the covered wagon, its inception, its many voyages across the continent of North America, and some of the nuances that go into it. Uh, we were a little bit delirious. Obviously, we don't sleep that much on the journey, and so bear with us as we stumble through this podcast. But um, for anybody curious about what it's like to drive a truck full of invaluable trees across North America, uh, we're going to walk you through that process. Enjoy. These are the days of our lives. It's like, these are the lessons of the wagon, of the covered wagon. The fast lane in Lincoln, Nebraska. Nebraska's fast lane does include semis. All right. And I'm out. And I'm out of the fast of a semi truck. There we go. Check, and check, check. I'm about ready to get passed by a trucker that definitely wants to deck me. Coming up on my left. Watch this. This guy's going to be upset. Is he upset? I'm not going to look at him. He's upset, isn't he? No, you should have looked. Oh, really? <laughs> what what happened? You should see his face. Oh, really? He's, looking, he's like this. He's trucking, dude. He's trucking. He's trucking. We're trucking. I'm in my... I'm Mr. Steel right now. Okay, here we go. Let's see if we can get by this black hot air balloon of a semi-truck. Got the Schneider. All right. Here we go. How's that? <clears throat> yeah, good. Yeah. Good. And I think the other thing too that's important to note beyond uh, semi trucks and the fast lane on the covered wagon is we don't stop to eat <laughs> unless it's barbecue. This is a major, this has become a major tradition of the covered wagon. We do not sit down to have an official meal unless it's barbecue. Has to be meat. It's gotta be cooked on a grill. Yes. It's gotta be lovely. So we went from... Sauces must be involved. We went from Portland, Oregon to Cheyenne, Wyoming without eating or sleeping. <laughs> we snacked. We grazed. Oh, arrived arrived in Cheyenne at around... What time we get there? 4 o'clock? 4.30? In the afternoon? Yeah. Uh, 4.45, 3, 4 o'clock, yeah. Okay, all right. So we, got, we, got, into, we got into Cheyenne at 4.45... And by six o'clock, we were consuming barbecue. Yeah. With the infamous Todd Schlafer. And Will Kearns. And uh, the even more infamous. <laughs> Willie. Willie. Hey, Willie boy. Assassin of anti-friction, Will Kearns. It was a great, <laughs> it was a great evening. So now we're on our way. We just dropped a tree off in Omaha, Nebraska. We're headed to Des Moines and Stopping point tonight for our very first meal of the day is going to be Smoky D's in Des Moines, winner of the 2016 Iowa Triple and, Crown Barbecue Competition. And if, if you've heard a podcast before on the road, you know that we've stopped here once before. I was thinking, <laughs> I, I was thinking about this, though, because 
The barbecue thing didn't start with Colton, but Colton was definitely very complimentary to the passion for barbecue that the Mirai crew has. I think he added fuel to the fire. Yeah, I think he just gave more, I think he gave more structure to our, our barbecue passion. <laughs> yes, he did. Because prior to that, it was just barbecue <laughs> as a blanket statement. We now definitely speak about it with a higher level of... It's become church. <laughs> yeah. And, I have he a, and heavy a religious D's. patron. <laughs> We call it heavy D's because when you go into smoky D's in uh, Des Moines, oh, it's so there's some good. pretty heavy slabs of meat that you end up consuming. But yeah. smoky D's is pretty legit in terms of the world of barbecue in the in the eastern United States, Midwest, I guess, but east of the Rockies, smoky D's has definitely put a stamp on its, its uh, place in barbecue history, legend, and lore. Look at this flare on the bridge. Yeah. Pretty interesting. I want some flare on my bridge. Go all the way over. So what did you want to talk about? Because I'm pretty hyped on barbecue. I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry. I could literally <laughs> eat oh, definitely a full rack of ribs, probably some brisket. Uh, <laughs> we'll need some burnt ends. Mac a, and cheese is on the agenda. It's all good. You could just pass out right here afterwards. Yeah, well, you can. Keep, yeah, keep. <laughs> we've got a bench seat. <laughs> This is the first time in the history of the covered wagon we've had a bench seat up front. We've been cuddling on each other's lap. Which means this is actually the first time that anybody can lay down horizontally to get some sleep, and it has already led to much safer, <laughs> much and, safer and, travels and far more, far more uh, full, legitimate sleep for the person who is in the off cycle of driving. Oh man, really good sleep too. It, like rocks you to yeah, sleep. Yeah, good dude. sleep. It's I like, slept well today. Whoa, whoa. Like a little baby in a and cradle. And we stopped. We stopped at our oasis. Well, let's just start at the beginning. Oh yeah, we need. Let's back start up. at the beginning. The beginning was several weeks ago. <laughs> several weeks ago. So most people don't really understand what it looks like to put together a covered wagon. No, they just think we throw trees on a truck and head out. Yeah. Hey, we'll meet you at so and so. Yeah, and I and I think I should probably maybe even go back to the birth of the covered wagon. Oh. Because uh, the covered wagon is actually something that we're getting history. What's that? History lesson. Well, yeah, I, I mean, kind of. I whatever. <laughs> it's actually something that came about as a result of my apprenticeship in Japan. Because for most people, and when you look at the Kokufu exhibition, most most professionals in the Kokufu exhibition enter one one tree. On the heavy side, four trees, really extensive uh, professional might, uh, or I, I would say a, a very prolific professional might enter 10 to 12 trees, only maybe a handful of those in Japan. Uh, and then Mr. Kimura would enter anywhere between 50 and 100 trees. <laughs> oh my God. So it was, it, it was, <laughs> Not through any like lesson of or interstate commerce that w I ended up learning how to pack trucks. It was it was through the, just the exorbitant number of trees that were entered into the Kokufu exhibition that we would get together. The older apprentices would come back and obviously help with the the repotting of the trees into their sh show containers. They would go home over the New Year's holiday, which is a big holiday in Japan. So we would do the repotting for the Kokufu in December. Over the New Year's holiday, at the beginning of January, we would do all of the show mossing. 
So we would be mossing you know, between 50 and 100 trees, which is a lot of moss if you think about that, like yeah, really that, well-developed, beautiful moss. You had to be growing uh, moss for a while. Yeah, and, and show mossing in Japan is, uh, especially for Mr. Kimura, is equally as involved as styling a tree for him or doing anything else. Like, had to be just right, just the right kind of moss. There's a lot of, of things about show mossing I want to come back to. That's not what we're here to talk about today because we're on the wagon. Anyways, when it came time for the judging to take all the trees to Tokyo in the middle of January for the Kokfu judging, all of the uh, older apprentices would come back. We would back in the trucks to Mr. Kimura's. We had a company truck that we would utilize and oftentimes we would end up borrowing uh, a larger, closer to a semi-sized truck from one of the apprentices that studied with Mr. Kimura for a period of time. He would come up from Shikoku Island. We would back his semi-truck into the very, very narrow, almost impossibly small entryway. And it would take up the entire width of Mr. Kimura's driveway to back this truck up into it. And we would have benches set out where we would bring these planks of wood and beer crates and we would set out these benches and we would bring all the trees from the greenhouse in the very back of Mr. Kimura's facility up onto these benches. There would be two or three apprentices in the truck. Obviously, one of the oldest apprentices would be in charge of the packing and loading because you do have to have a lot of experience to get all these trees into these trucks. I mean, we're going to be maxed out without a doubt. We're not going to have enough space and have to fit them all into these trucks. There was never a year where it was comfortable. So then we do the loading and we're fitting these trees in and you're talking about the most highly manicured trees in Japan being loaded together and not just loaded like they don't have luxurious space around each tree because we have to get more trees than can conceivably fit into this truck without without destroying any aspect of their shape, moss, pot, branching, etc. because they've been primed for the judging of the Kokfu. Now you will be surprised, you would be surprised if you saw that how tightly fit together they were, how branches overlapped, how foliage was touching, and we still did not impact the shape of the tree. And herein lies the key to being able to pack a truck correctly because you have to be fitting the trees together like puzzle pieces. Anyways, for six years, uh, I helped obviously with the Coke food packing and unloading and reloading. And we would take those trees to the judging. We would unload them. We would pack them again after the photo shoot from the judging. We would bring them back to Mr. Kimura's. We would pack them again to go to the museum two weeks later. We would unload them and display them. And then we would pack them again to bring them home from the museum. So you can imagine we packed a truck to, 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 to the max to carry all of these trees at least one, two, three, four, at least four times, at least four times we had to do this every single season. And four, sometimes- Four trips. Huh? Four full trips back and forth. Four full trips, Woo! four full trips, just during the Coke food, just during a condensed period of three weeks in, in January and early February, we were packing that truck to the max to the four <laughs> times. That makes the covered wagon look See, not so bad now. <laughs> I mean, that, that's how you get become really proficient at packing, yeah. right? Because you cannot, there is not a single excuse that you could come up with between, besides like somebody dropped a nuclear bomb on the truck. <laughs> you can't come up with an excuse to show up with all the trees mangled and screwed up. So doesn't work that way. No, nah, it doesn't work. So, and you can't also can't tell Mr. Kimura, I'm sorry they didn't fit. That's just not acceptable. <laughs> It's like, well, then you need to make them fit. 
pull it out and re reorganize. Yeah, totally. Da, 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 uh, so that that actually was like the background mm. that I was when I looked at that. I thought, man, this is what it's like to move trees. That was just my baseline. I had no idea how anybody else did it. I, I couldn't have cared less because I had seen that system and recognized when you see everybody else, we're bringing far more trees packed more tightly in impossible circumstances. And in the six years I was there, never had a single failure. Wow. Right. So coming back to the United States, I was then like, obviously trees have to be able to move across the United States and the landmass is ginormous. Huge. Okay. And so I had sold some trees, very first trees I ever sold to my very first client as I became a professional in 2010. His name was Mike Blanton. He's one of the great, I think, patrons and supporters of American bonsai or bonsai in the United States. Um, his wife, Amy, is still super supportive and going hard in bonsai. Wonderful people. And Mike needed some trees to get from Portland, Oregon to Nashville, Tennessee. So at that point, I had a surplus of Akadama and there were uh, a community of people in the southeastern United States that wanted Akadama. There were quite a few trees. So I was like, I'll just drive them out there. And I looked at the number of trees I needed and it was a relative or excuse me i looked at the amount of space i needed based on the number of trees and it was a relatively small amount of space so i looked up on u-haul the, the the perfect amount of space that i needed to house these trees and these bags of soil i go to some super backwoods u-haul supplier between here and <laughs> portland i mean it was like really sketchy and i get this little basically the U-Haul that's the cheapest and has the highest gas mileage and has the quote unquote space that I need was the U-Haul rated to move an apartment. Huh. Okay, so I get it. I get back to, to Mirai and I start loading. And I think I probably had two or 300 bags of Akadama that I needed to put on this thing. And then the trees <laughs> were gonna sit on top of them, right? <laughs> and I'm like, this is, this is great. So I start loading this thing full of Akadama. Well, the thing that I did not consider wait. was the weight. Oh man. So I load I load this this apartment mover, which is rated to move something like two thousand, three thousand pounds. Not even close. Not even. Between five and nine hundred pounds oh, worth of stuff. I probably put you made two, a load. Two hundred, two, three hundred bags of Akadama and they're twenty-six pounds a bag. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was 6,000 pounds worth of weight in this thing. And I took it into town to fill it up with gas and driving it back up the hill to Mirai. The engine started smoking. I was obviously riding on the axles of the vehicle. So I get back and I call U-Haul and I'm like, hey, I, I think I underestimated this. I got this kind of a vehicle to um, move this kind of space, but I have this weight. It's looking like I'm going to be moving 6,000 pounds. How much, what, what size vehicle? You need a 22 foot truck. That's our 22 foot truck. So I have to go get a 22 foot truck. Well, when you lay out 300 bags of Akadama on the floor of a 22 foot truck, it's, it's two bags high. Wow. So I've got the whole floor covered in Akadama because I don't want the trees sliding around. It's two bags high and I've got like 10 trees in a 22 foot truck. Oh, man. The biggest waste of money, time, <laughs> everything that you can imagine. Anyways, that was the first covered wagon in 2011. 
how far it's come. How far it's come. How far By it's how come. far it has come. Wow, that's a lot of We've made, this is our 10th trip across the country, like full on Portland, Oregon to Ooh. New York, New York, which is pretty amazing. We've been to... We're doing a swing down this year. Three national shows. Yeah, we're adding a leg. Yeah, you're heading to Atlanta. We ran a covered wagon to Houston, Texas this past last spring. Year. Yeah, last spring. Yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been quite quite an ordeal. It's been quite an ordeal, but it, it is without a doubt one of the most important things that I think Mirai does because it removes the limitation of the massive size of continental North America. Yeah, and you can get the trees there safely. Trees, someone knows. Trees, soil, tools, goods. You know, I mean, when you think about the national show, show trees opening up a unification of exhibitions, east and west, in terms of the United States. Steel trucking's been doing it well here. What's that? Steel trucking's been taking it down for 10 years. I guess it has, hasn't it? Mr. Steel, the call sign Steel Mr. Steel has been on the North American highways for 10 years this trip. There it is. Wow. Son of a gun. 10th year anniversary. 10 year trip. And this is the 10th trip. 10th trip. This is the 10th, not, not 10th trip in terms of the covered this wagon, one. but this is the 10th, 10th trip. trip, Portland to New York. There we go. Interesting. Wow. Mr. Steel, 10 year anniversary. Congratulations to me. Fascinating. Fascinating. <laughs> Steel trucking, baby. Yeah, what a... But it has. It's been really interesting over the years to watch the covered wagon. I'll never forget the first wagon that went Portland, Oregon to New York. I had no clue what I was doing uh, on that trip either. I'd only ever run it to Tennessee, and then I ended up taking a, a trip to New York. Um I actually, I take that back. It was the second trip truck to New York, the one that went all the way to the uh, far east side of New York, because I had been to the national show on a covered wagon uh, previous to that. But the truck that went all the way to the east side of New York, when I did so, I had no idea what I was doing. And I just followed my navigation, which took me straight through Manhattan. And, oh. and prior oh. to that, I had not calculated or even considered the road tolls, which oh, if man. anybody's curious to get across North America from Portland, Oregon to uh, New York, New York, On it, toll it, roads it costs roughly 270 to $320, depending on what road tolls you hit. Toll roads only, not even your fuel. That's toll roads only. Now, the first trip to the east side of New York, I followed my navigation, which took me straight through New York, New York City. I went straight through Manhattan, stupidest thing I've ever done, had no idea what I was doing. Cost me $175 just to go over the George Washington Bridge. Uh, I got into Manhattan, I was following my navigation. It put me on a small road that had 10 foot high uh, bridge clearance and a cop pulled me over I'm not kidding, a quarter of a mile from do dropping down into a, definitely an irreversible chain event of act reaction, chain reaction of events that would have basically can open the U-Haul and forever changed my concept of driving and bonsai. He, he wasn't could, nice about it. He could it would have never been a covered wagon again. <laughs> there never would have been a covered wagon again. Without no. a doubt, if I had survived it, there would have <laughs> never been a covered wagon again. He was not nice about it. He, he me, was not nice about it. He didn't it. ticket he, you, did he? He gave me three tickets. Oh, my God. Not he one, gave me not three tickets. Three. He cussed at me. Oh and God. then 
thankfully, and I just think about how serendipitous the entire thing was because he stopped me before I got to an ir irreversible point. I mean, we're talking rush hour traffic moving at 50 miles an hour, cars bumper to bumper, all four lanes. He pulls me over, they're flying by us, and he said, the only way for you to get yourself out of this because you're such an idiot is to go straight across four lanes of 50 mile an hour traffic and get to that exit, which was absolutely perpendicular to where I was sitting on the road. <laughs> and he turned on his lights, so traffic slowed down, and he pulled into traffic and he left. He was just like, I, I kept <laughs> oh you from growing God. under the bridge. You're getting three tickets, which is definitely gonna run the, you the risk of having a suspended license in Oregon. And good luck getting off of this, you dipshit from out of state. Now and he drove off. <laughs> oh my God, dude. Welcome to New York cops. Yeah, it took me two and a half hours to get off of that highway. <laughs> oh my it took God. me two and a half hours. I just had to wait because there was absolutely nobody that was going to. I mean, but they're coming up over the crest of this hill. I'm going to cut across people, you know, 55 miles an hour. <laughs> oh, steady flow of traffic took me took me two, two and a half hours to get off of it. I had to lick my wounds seriously from that covered wagon because I think I lost between the cost of everything, hotels, gas, truck, road tolls, tickets. And I think I ended up losing four or $5,000 on that covered wagon. <laughs> I mean, it was like Those tickets brutally <laughs> painful, brutally painful, but I was pretty determined because it was very clear that things needed to move west to east and east to west. Yeah, they do. Uh, it, it opens up. We got a load now. Yeah, just the same as like the railroad opened up North America in. Obviously, there's a lot of negative connotation to that. We're just talking about sort of expanding the, the ability to move uh, in Boneside to have a credible, trustworthy white glove service that definitely takes the trees into consideration and not only consideration, but prioritizes the trees health as they move across the country is a very big deal because now when we talk about going to the national show, we might have anywhere between nine and 30 trees that are show worthy trees from the West Coast yeah, headed to, to Rochester, New York. Yeah, everyone puts them in the truck. These are very- And it flies these, out and meets us there. These are very, very priceless trees. In this particular truck right here, we've got the Ben Oki, California Juniper, headed to the eastern United States. We have one of Mariah's most- Iconic. I, I would say iconic and prized Sierra Junipers in the back yeah. of the truck. Sad to see it go. Uh, yeah, it's very sad, but, but also it's like, what would you do to get that from here to where it's going? That was where the covered wagon was born. Yeah, it would be a personal person driving it across the, the country. Yeah, and but when you think about it, with the size of the mm. trees and the awkwardness, it would be somebody driving a moving truck yeah. who has maybe never packed a bonsai tree before, who maybe ha doesn't think about the weather considerations. Because when we talk about the covered wagon, and again, we'll go back to the very sort of several weeks ago when the covered wagon actually starts its process. But just this trip alone, when you think about the logistics we had to deal with for the first time in the history of the covered wagon, we had to deal with temperatures that were below 20 degrees for prolonged periods of time. Yeah, we just left it. I mean, it was frigidly, oh. frigidly cold. 
And when you think about the truck that runs from west to east for the national show, we have to run a refrigerated truck to get to the national show because the national show typically occurs. September. uh, What's that? September. Originally, it was June. Then it moved to September. September September is one of the hottest months crossing the country. The refrigerated truck can cool it down. Well, the the stipulation to a refrigerated unit is they don't do one-way rentals of refrigerated units, no matter who the company is. So all of a sudden, we needed that insulation not to keep the truck cool, but to keep the trees actually warm from freezing on this trip. And all we had available to us was a very standard, very thin-walled plastic Penske box. And so inside of that, we had to come up with an entire interior structure. Insulate the ceiling, the floor. (laughs) Right. But this is a structure that not only gets us there, it's also a structure that when you think about it, has to be very convenient to take apart because you could build anything a refrigerated unit inside of a penske sure anybody can do that but then how do you take it apart when you're what do you, you do with it when you get what there? do you do with it you have you don't have any place to discard of it when you think about it the covered wagon is kind of a a minor very minor engineering marvel from the efficiency of the structures that we make to operate this whole thing and be able to conveniently build it and take it down in very short efficient periods of time with extremely little waste that serve all of the purposes of getting these trees across the country in the safest possible manner. So again, this has been like a a true product of experience and evolution in in the journeys. But uh, in the the 10th anniversary of a coast to coast, west to full east coast, uh, having to confront 20 degree temperatures through Idaho and most of Utah was a, an entirely new experience and good thing that that mr lime allen was on board the re- electrical engineer had us <laughs> had us powered up had us powered up got a little kept it above freezing almost melted down some cables not bad <laughs> we we managed to not we start the truck to, on fire in the process that is true yeah yeah little under gauged on those on those uh jumper cables yep ha- have an inverter in process we had jumper cables had to stop at a grittier truck stop they don't, to look, look no for the heavier gauged trucks. wires yeah, yeah no one sells good uh jumper cables anymore they all got this cheap chinese junk yeah but you never 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 doubt flying jays <laughs> there you go okay lo- <laughs> loves is the truck stop of choice for the covered wagon as we as we journey across the country i have a love affair with flying jay but when it comes down to it when you need the real deal like <laughs> If you were talking about a stick to your bones meal, if you were talking about a cup of coffee that could keep you up for three straight days that potentially had methamphetamines in it, if you needed (laughs) a pair of gloves that you could touch absolute zero or or the 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 ultimate upper limit of heat, Flying J's is going to be it. And they had that six gauge copper wire that we needed insulated for the cables that would not melt down as we ran a very small, very Very minimal, almost a jokingly small heater in the back of this unit to keep it from freezing through those subarctic conditions. Amazing, amazing what we do, what we're willing to do. It's got its own stand back there. It's suspended. It's got its little bar hanging right where we need it to be. Of course it does. (laughs) It's the way it rolls. Yeah, so this is your second covered wagon journey on the official wagon but you also you took you took a opportunity to run some nick lens trees via a mini wagon to uh washington dc earlier this year one month ago so this is actually your second second trip trip this year (laughs) across the country not even this year just in the past month 
I think I'm addicted to bonsai. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> These tiny trees are calling me. Yeah, tiny trees are calling. Well, and you and you also get to go back down south, where you're very, very happy being. Ah, uh, yes. Lime's well, gonna be taking the the wagon over from me. I'm gonna stop in New York. I've got a few things that I've got to get done there, and then I've got to get back to Mariah before classes. Lime's gonna carry on to uh, the southeastern United States, stopping and flying home in Atlanta. So, yeah, I love it down there. Kind of interesting. Yeah, got, you, my friend, she she texted me today. I made us reservations. We're going to this to occasion restaurant. I was like, all right, let's do it. That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Now you lived in Atlanta. No, uh, it's Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, you lived in South Carolina. But why, we we why? toured when I was in the band. We toured the South for two years. We played so many Southern cities. Oh man. Why did you live in Charleston? Uh, Navy. Navy. Okay. Nuclear power school. Goose Creek, South Carolina. Naval Weapons Station. So that was all part of your military yeah. life? I would never went down south, man. I was a nor uh, ignorant northerner. Uh-huh. I didn't know anything. What, was, is, what is it that you like about the south? Why are you so pumped to food, go back? The people are polite. There's so much, so many nice people down there. The food is incredible. It's just a good culture, man. I don't, people don't really understand it until they move down there and go hang out down there. It's just it, fun, fun people, really fun people. It's pretty radically different than anywhere else in the United totally States, the South. Different. It's its own place. Yeah, you have manners down there. If someone holds the door for you, you say thank you no matter what. Like, you don't walk by them and snub your nose at them. That's just inappropriate, you know? So it's nice down there. I like it. I met a lot of nice people. The thing that amazes me about the South is just how incredibly hot and humid it is. That is not nice about the South. That's, the, the, that's my die. Don't, that's why I could never live there. I feel like people are incredibly nice for how incredibly uncomfortable the weather is. Dude, it gets so hot in the summer, man. You sweat through your clothing. Just walk outside and you're just like, oh, well, I'm wet. There we go. The other <laughs> thing that I'm really that I really noticed about the South is the fact that they use a vinegar based sauce on their barbecue, which I really appreciate. It definitely meets my taste buds where they're at. You're a vinegar base. I think that I think that that is one of my, one of my most favorite things about the South. <laughs> is he just brought it the back. quality full of the barbecue, barbecue there. That's what I'm saying. Full circle to barbecue. <laughs> Not necessarily around in and around Nashville, Tennessee, because they definitely focus on the dry rub. I, you know, I've had some good dry rub in in uh, Georgia. Huh. Yeah. yeah. And there was a little smokehouse just outside of base used to go to that was pretty good i wish i was going to atlanta with you i do yeah it's fun i do yeah that would be really fun i'd love to stop and see see some people in north carolina and just get a general vibe for driving the southern united states because i've never actually driven the eastern seaboard that that would be new for me what about when you went down to uh what's her face's place in florida uh yeah but but i i came florida up through alabama so that's not the eastern seaboard. Oh, I'm, no, now, that's I'm not. now on the Gulf side. Yep, you're on the yep. Gulf. So I've never done that. I, that, that. That is definitely a place inside of the United States that I aspire to go see. We'll, we'll, we'll make a trip and we'll add a couple extra days and stay in Charleston. There we go. There we <laughs> go. I've down. never been to either of the Carolinas. Oh, man, they're so Never wonderful. been to either of the Carolinas. They're, they're two, two of the very limited number of states that I've never been to oh. and explored. I need Maine and Alaska. Huh? I need Maine and Alaska. It's my two states I haven't been to yet. Maine and Alaska? Yep. Huh? Two awesome ones, too. Yeah, those. So do you get excited for the covered wagon? 
Uh, my very first time coming up to Mariah and helping with the covered wagon, I realized how stressful it was and how much was going on. And I was like, whoa, uh, I thought I was in the way the first year and I was helping and I'm like, man, everyone's really intense and upset and there's stress. And then I, I like boned out and Troy's like, why didn't you stay and help? I was like, cause I thought you guys were all mad at me, man. I had to, he's like, no man, we needed help. I was like, oh, well from that point forward, I'll be there. Yeah, <clears throat> I'm going to say it is stressful. I'm going to say that of all the things that we do at Mirai, outside of executing the Artisan's Cup, this is easily the most stressful thing that we take on. Yeah, e easily. And it's always the rhythm has become when we leave Portland, Oregon, we always do so in the late afternoon or evening. Oftentimes we're trying to load and the limitation to our leaving time is just getting the truck loaded. So it's very common for us to leave Mariah at 11 p.m. or 11.30 p.m. and then drive through the night through Idaho and uh, Utah and then roll into Cheyenne, Wyoming, which is our first stop the following evening. Yeah, usually 10 o'clock rolls around. Yeah. We just finish up. You still haven't packed your clothes or showered. Yeah, typically <laughs> typically you guys are finishing loading while I'm We're showering. We're finishing your showering, rushing yeah. out with the bag, jumping in the truck and taking off. Yeah, so it's not pleasant. It's never <laughs> been pleasant. The covered wagon isn't something we do because we just love to drive. It's something that we do out of necessity. Yeah. But. It provides a good service for everyone. But I always find because leading up to the covered wagon, I mean, I'm literally thinking about every single tree that's gonna be on it. The, the quantity of work that has to happen in terms of tree work to get everybody their trees, packing the things that Photos. are at risk, the specific stands that we have to build to be able to secure the trees and have them right across the country. I mean, I doubt most people know that when you drive a tree 3000 miles across the country, the vibrations of the road, no matter how well you pack a tree, take a toll on a tree and take a toll on what's underneath that tree. And I've actually had trees in the 3000 trip mile trip across the country. I've actually had them vibrate enough to erode the packing underneath them and be riding on metal or the wood floor of the truck by the time I get to where I'm going, which obviously is a huge risk for that container to break. So being able to make sure that the tree is immobile that it's stabilized, that it's packed well, that the packing is the right style and type and thickness and durability. And it's just a lot. So and weeks, limbs, long limbs yeah. and branches are supported. Yeah. And, and when we plan out a covered wagon, we plan out a covered wagon in terms of the timing of the wagon 12, 12 uh, months in advance. We're planning, we have already planned the, the timing for next year's covered wagon on our schedule uh, in 2019, we have the 2020 covered wagon planned. I mean, it also coincides with the national show, so it works quite well. Yep. But we are always thinking very hard, far in advance. But I think the real sort of crystallizing moment for the covered wagon to come to life is when Sam launches the email that yeah. announces it. Because now all of a sudden, with the announcement of the covered wagon, typically three to four weeks in advance of when we're going to run, and we've already known we're going to run, uh, that's when we start getting all of the feedback from people saying, hey, it's time to move my tree across the country. We start getting ex people who, who we don't typically have contact with or didn't know had trees that needed to go reaching out to us, which we very much welcome. And that's part, part of why we do this is just to create the ability to move trees. But we start handling a massive amount of correspondence and communication, logistics, sizes, where it needs to go, what our route is gonna be. And we don't know 
necessarily the route because our route is dependent upon where the trees need to get to. So we have a fairly, after, after doing this for 10 years, we have a fairly legitimate knowledge of the time frame to get from place to place, the limitations, the traffic patterns, the timing to get ourselves into trouble, the stop locations and drop-offs. Like it's taken a long time to set up the infrastructure to be able to smoothly run a wagon. Yeah. But fielding a lot of trial and error. Yeah, absolutely. But fielding all of that correspondence and starting to think about how, when we're running through the middle of the country, do we get a tree to Texas or get a tree to Atlanta when we're stopping in New York or pick up a tree from when, you know Minnesota in route and in the closest locations and the meeting points and the time frames and the logistics? It, it's just a monster. It is an absolute monster. Yeah. But just we got a whole team of people dealing with it. Yeah, the covered wagon is a team of people that makes it work. And just I think more than anything, probably without ever having with nobody having the inside scoop on the covered wagon, nobody really realizes how malleable as a team we have to be and how yeah. malleable we are. You know, it's not set in stone. It's like our the covered wagon is a service that was created to serve the bonsai community in North America. Yeah. And, and that means that we're pretty willing to try and problem solve to the very best of our ability to figure out solutions to get people their trees or to be able to make things move across the country. And it's it's been, we've had to come up with some very creative ways over the course of the years that we've been doing this to, to satisfy the need that existed for those particular circumstances. Case in point, I think would be the, the heater in this one. You know, we've had to uh, develop ways to run the very thin walled uninsulated trucks in extremely hot conditions too and reflect the heat yeah, which we got the troy, top thing we yeah did troy one, troy has figured out and become a master at but uh yeah the malleability is the thing that i marvel at the most and the team's ability to roll with the punches liz killed it for her first year yeah liz just liz took the covered wagon on as if she had done it every yeah. year since its inception and <laughs> organized it to the perfection and to a t and sam you know sam's exchanges and correspondence and communication is just impeccable. So I feel really, really good about this wagon. And quite honestly, it's made it very, very easy for you and I. Yeah. This is by far the you most stress-free. don't have stress to think free. about much. Yeah. It's just and like, I, there it is. And Colton had the Colton had the covered wagon dialed in to be sure. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the tagging system that he established and the organizational systems that were in place, but definitely every year we do it, we get a little bit better little bit little bit more this is very smooth capable. this year yeah very smooth i yep. would say even the fact that we're getting to sleep that we're not totally <laughs> destroyed that that's a whole that testimony. we're intentionally not eating and not because we are so far behind and having to get somewhere in a superhuman you know feat of driving like it's pretty well calculated yeah and i'm and i and i like that but that organizational period of the covered wagon starts several weeks prior to the wagon. And as we get closer and closer, the number of trees that are going to be on the wagon starts to increase almost exponentially as it gets closer. Like a lot of people tend to wait till the very end and then be like, oh, I need this tree. And I'm assuming that there's some things that need to be worked out and, and deals are, that are being brokered and happening at the last minute. And the hope would be that the wagon is helping some of these deals also take place because it's like, look, I got transport on the wagon. They leave at this point. I need to get it on here. Either you do or don't want yep. to sell the tree or either you do or don't want to buy the tree. 
and the the capacity for it to move hopefully is what facilitates some of that commerce to yeah, taking eases, place yeah it uses the you know the stress of the sale getting the tree to you yeah because yeah. ship, shipping it you just yeah can't. shipping is a that's nightmare just, that's just not safe i mean it's risky yeah seeing getting a getting a ron lang container from yeah. ron and sharon double boxed in the most impenetrable absolutely bulletproof packing ever and seeing it shattered yeah that is as not. it arrives to mariah makes you realize how risky it is to send a bonsai tree in a cardboard box across yep. the country totally yeah so but the real big the really big kicker for the covered wagon is once we start accumulating these trees if we're going to do a web sale in conjunction and when we do a web sale that just multiplies the covered wagons work by like tenfold because now you've got to wait for the trees to sell i've got to do the work on the trees plus the work on, on the tree i've got to do the work on the trees for the web sale plus the work on the trees that are going to be on the wagon whatever work needs to be done it starts to amass this this critical quantity of trees that become to some degree unrealistic in terms of the work that can get done in the time frame that we have to do it yeah, this year got done pretty good though. Huh? Did pretty good this year. I was a little. We bit, did pretty good. I yeah. mean, I was the the reason we left so late was because I was still wiring trees, but I got every single tree. Yeah, you got it all done. So I did a calculation as we were riding today, as as you were driving. In the past thirty days, I've put my hands on two hundred and seven oh trees. I've wired thirty four trees. Wow. In thirty days. Jeez, oh Pete. To get this done. So the sale too. The sale happens right before this. Yeah. Too. Well, I mean, and that and that. So, so. But when we get into those last, when we get into the final week of the covered wagon, we've had the correspondence. We've had the increase of number of trees coming in. We also, if we're doing a web sale, have the announcements of that, the launching of that, which is a whole smear of photography and computer work and measuring and descriptions and weights and uploading and then ma managing the correspondence and then we finally have the final list kind of we cut off taking taking any new orders basically seven days before the wagon goes because now the truck size is definitively finalized we're hoping to goodness that we can fit all the trees in it but then we start the organizational process of the contact lists and the tagging systems and the drop points and all of the different nuances of communication correspondence and clearly outlining what can be expected, what's going to happen and figuring ourselves uh, uh, in terms of days, drops, points, etc. And I would say by the time we leave, every time we've left on a covered wagon, mentally, I'm probably at the point where I can barely form a sentence. Yeah, you want to break. Huh? You're about to pop. About to pop. Yep. It's easily the worst thing that I have to do as a bone type professional <laughs> is the covered wagon. It's one of the most important, significant, positive things that we do. It's easily for me personally, yeah. when I look at all the scopes of work, it is one of the worst because I feel so much pressure. I have nightmares the weeks leading up to the covered wagon. I have anxiety that literally has probably been the single source of my gray hair. <laughs> like the covered wagon takes its toll. And so <laughs> consequently, when we get into the truck and we start, and sometimes I by myself, uh, thankfully, uh, lately Lime has been my co-pilot on this whole thing and it's definitely much safer and far more uh, enjoyable. But 
I mean, from here to Cheyenne, Wyoming, the quantity of conversation that we had was very minimal. It was rest time. I mean, you were sleeping. I was, I was trying to rid myself of an exorbitant amount of anxiety. Yeah. And by the time I get to Cheyenne, Wyoming, on every single trip that I've ever done across the country, I am a shell of my former self. <laughs> Usually I'll have to meet somebody. Last night it was Todd and Will. They know me well and they've met me on the covered wagon enough times that they don't ask me what's wrong anymore. They get it already. But I have a hard time even talking. Yeah, you were pretty quiet. Although that dinner was great. Dinner was awesome. <laughs> and then getting in that, that Little America, that place is cozy. I'm telling you, that's the oasis. Yeah, that was cozy. In the prairie that calls the covered wagon like a siren to Ulysses <laughs> woo, 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 woo. in the Odyssey. Yeah. Little America, the greatest stopping point, and not just any Little America, it's the Little American Cheyenne. It's like going back in time, most comfortable beds. We do uh, seek out the pillow top at any place we stay on the covered wagon. You always, you can always judge a place by its bathroom. That's how you walk in somewhere, go to their bathroom. How clean, how nice, how organized is the restroom? See, I feel like you can always judge a place by the quality of the mattress. Because well, that's where every hotel or motel is going to skimp is on that mattress. But you get that high-end pillow top. Yeah, that does. I, I, I always judge by bathrooms. But uh, the bathroom is inherently going to be clean if they have a pillow top mattress. It's just the way true. it goes. <laughs> that's true. You can't have one without the other. You, can't you don't have one without. You don't the other. have. You don't have a pillow top mattress in a dirty bathroom. You have a no. pillow top mattress in a clean bathroom. You can have a clean bathroom in a crappy mattress. Well, That's very easy. Uh, That's yeah. very easy. Usually got the crappy mattress. It's usually the, the beat down, run down bathroom that's got crap in it. I disagree because I think even Marriott's up to like three years ago had really crappy mattresses. Oh wow! Now they've gone to full pillow tops. Oh, it's the way it goes. What it's what we crave. That, that mattress at Little America, when I found Little America, it was when we were driving across the country with Zach Scheiman and Peter Warren for, I believe it was the 2000, either 2010 or 2012 national show. And when we stumbled across Little America, it was on our way back uh, from New York to Portland, Oregon. And we were, I mean, all three of us were seeing cross-eyed we had driven straight through from New York to Cheyenne sleeping. We had like a little fold out camping chair that sat in between the two <laughs> chairs. I mean, there wasn't enough room for all three of us in there. So we were all crammed together. Like you couldn't legitimately sleep. It was so uncomfortable for all three of us. By the time we from got to Cheyenne, to Cheyenne. Oh dude, we were crushed, that crushed. Awfully uncomfortable. Crushed. Sounding. Okay. But here's the thing. There were fires in Colorado, every hotel, motel, every place that you could possibly lay your head down in Cheyenne was full because everybody had evacuated northern Colorado and were staying as close as possible in Cheyenne. And we called 42 hotels to find rooms, couldn't find an open room. We called Little America as our last hope and they said, you know what, we have one room. Okay. Please. And we rolled in there and it was literally like when I laid down on that bed in this old school and I still have a very skewed perception of walking into the lobby of that place, which is amazing. It's like going yeah, back to the beautiful. 1920s. Great woodwork. Like things mounted on the wall, old dark wood, 
old men should have been smoking cigars as we walked down it, but it was too late <laughs> and I was too crazy. But walking in there, it was just like, I felt home. I felt like I was home. And when I laid down on that bed, it engulfed me in just pure sweet pillow top love. And it changed my idea <laughs> of everything hands, that I valued in a hotel. Little hands reached around and put you to sleep. <laughs> and the best part about it is the next morning was Sunday morning and they had a Sunday oh, we brunch. Missed that. We missed the brunch. That was prime rib, all you could eat. I mean, everything was delicious. And since then, Little America has had my heart, but uh, the pillow top experience also was born, was birthed on that trip. It's a nice place, man. It's cozy. Yeah, the covered wagon. I feel I feel downright uh, vigorous today. I feel healthy. Um. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm up. I felt good yesterday when I woke up from the nap from sleeping on well, the bench. Well, that's because see, but that's because you got to sleep. <laughs> I did. I got to sleep today while you were driving, and yeah. I feel like a million dollars. Yeah, you did. It's uh, a little bit of sleep on this bench, man. Changes everything. You get back in the seat, and you're like, oh, I'm ready to go. Yeah. Ooh. Feels you good. Know, you know what else is kind of cool? I, I, I think, and although I don't know, I think, I think to a degree, the covered wagon is a little bit of a temperature gauge in terms of the health and vigor of bonsai in the United States. Oh, if it's fully loaded and yeah, what trees are yeah, moving? Definitely, yeah, definitely. I mean, you there have been times where it has not been fully loaded. You have seen lulls uh, and, and you kind of get a real pulse on the workings and the enthusiasm of the country via this sort of connecting vehicle yeah. that that does deliver for a lot of people all over North America. And it's pretty, pretty cool. It's yeah. pretty cool to get to watch it and see it as its own little self-sustaining organism inside of the Mirai umbrella of things that we do. I mean, the covered wagon is, it comes around once a year, some, some years twice this year, twice we needed it twice. Yeah. Uh, there's no way we could have met the transportation needs with a single wagon this year and really getting to hit the Southern United States. Whew. Rolling strong, 68 miles to Smoky D's in Des Moines. And my stomach is telling me it's time to go. Is that where they're going to meet us to pick up? No, they're meeting us at a Ramada in parking lot and then it's on to Smoky D's. Ah. But but um, come come back to me in terms of the pulse and the health of bonsai ah. in North America, because the last time you and I podcast on the covered wagon was coming back from the national show. And that was like, I mean, we were turbocharged with an endless amount of passion and enthusiasm from that show. It was so much fun being with everybody. It's also fun seeing everyone across the country. But I say the pulse and 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 everything, the vibrance of a country is interesting to see what trees are leaving Oregon. Yes. yes and heading is. back home or trees that, you know, sometimes Randy puts stuff on here, other people. It's interesting to see where they're going yep. in the country and what's yep. going on. Like that's, it's exciting, you know? Well, and that's what I'm saying. Like a little sad to see that Sierra go, but. Even inside the ecosystem, whether the truck is full or not, when you see what's on the truck, it's also. Yeah. Because you're seeing higher and higher quality trees going different places. Yeah. Definitely. And yep. you're seeing trees that have been at Mirai for a long time being worked with students and they're now capable and confident enough to take on these yep. trees in take their own home. gardens. Yep. Uh, you get to see people who maybe have been building the garden that they've always aspired to build. And now they get to place these final pieces 
it's like properly cool man it's pretty interesting and super sweet to be tapped into the community this it, way it i is, love it it is very interesting to, to to bump in everyone and see the excitement when we drop off too yep everyone's always really excited yeah for sure yeah. you get to and it's always very quick because we're always on a deadline but you get to say <laughs> hey man thank you here we go yeah thank There's you tree. We gotta thank go. you and enjoy enjoy <laughs> yeah. this and we hand it over feeling good about it but you know, when I say it's like the worst thing that I have to do as a professional, the responsibility of all that and everything that could go wrong really. There's a lot. Really gets super gnarly. I mean, had that cable melted down last night and yeah. we couldn't have kept those trees that would above have been... freezing, there were several trees that would have died in the covered wagon. Yeah. And there's not that. a single thing that we could have done. Yeah, we got it good though. Like just being able to skirt those issues is super stressful. Yeah. It has been... Uh... A learning experience one more little level of of knowledge you know not don't trust into certain things we relied on oh, well this truck stop will have what we need you know you uh you said something to me something to the effect of one of the things that you've learned at mirai is how to pa how to oh, pack yeah. a truck <laughs> i have learned <laughs> that is, when i watch people pack their trees in their car now i'm like whoa whoa what, what are you wait what are you doing stop yeah. I get in there, start breaking the foam. I keep a stack of foam at my house just for that purpose. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Being able to pack trees on the fly is, is, is a skill. Maybe we should do a stream on that. How to pack a tree in. Yeah. I think that would help people because a lot of times I notice they just set it in the back of their car and I'm like, you hit the brakes on that thing and that whole branch is going to get crushed. Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> I just don't think people think about that, you know? I didn't think about oh. it until I watched you and I was like, oh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. That make, why would I not think of that? Yeah. Yeah. This truck was particularly challenging because we had to get several trees away from the walls. This side. Yeah. Yeah. We just had to get them away from the walls because the walls are going to be so cold. cold so yeah. the hardy trees can be against the walls, but the other ones can't. And then you think about where do you put the heater and how does the airflow in a confined space work and what happens if we do put this insulated roof into it how's that going to impact it yeah man being able to pack a truck is serious and what? i think too a lot of times people tend to and i hey look i get it i get it i understand everybody out there that's done it i get it i've done it myself you assume you want to hope you're hoping but you're also assuming i'm probably not going to have to hit my brakes hard oh. enough to cause this i should be okay i've never yeah i should be okay and the second that you have to hit the brakes and all hell breaks loose and this tree that you love so much your heart is drops no, out the bottom it's no longer in your realm of control you've officially thrown it yeah. to the boneside gods what's going to happen is going to happen is a really crappy feeling and you think man all I had to do was a very minimal amount of effort. Just a very limited amount of packing would have stopped all of that. And because I chose to not do that, I've now thrown the fate of this tree into the atmosphere for whatever gravity and physical forces are going to act on it to basically determine its fate. And it's a shitty feeling. Yeah, totally. It's a really, really crappy feeling. I, I you know driving across the country just by myself the other day. you know i packed them a little different because i made a bed in the truck with me so that i didn't have to get a hotel but yeah having it blocked all in really nice 
You don't have to think about things because someone always cuts you off when you're carrying something important. It's like Murphy's Law. Inevitably, you're going to have to lock them up at least once across the country. If you have something important in your car that you don't want to get injured, they will cut you off. It's going to happen. Yep. You can't. <laughs> Inevitably. Inevitably, you're going to have to lock them up one time. There is yet to be a trip across the country where I was like, hey, we didn't almost die at least <laughs> once. It's yet. It's never happened. Got to keep it. Keep you on the toes. It's never happened. I mean, we've got chips in our windshield on this truck that I honestly, they happen clearly over the course of the evening time between Portland and Cheyenne and that I don't remember. I don't remember <laughs> what happened. I have no clue how those chips got there, but they are there. They are gone. Yeah. Well, had the sale, the sale went down pretty well. A lot yeah. of trees got on there. I hope everyone enjoys what they got. A lot of nice trees were sold. Yeah, Ooh. the goal is to exceed expectation when you see it in person. I, but going back to, going back to that first night in Cheyenne, just being crushed. Like, uh, I also feel like all of the anxiety and the nightmares and everything. The moment that I get that night of sleep in Cheyenne dissipate, and then I'm back to my normal self, and the covered wagon actually does become quite enjoyable. The stretch from Cheyenne to Chicago through the middle of the country, most people would say it's so boring, but I so disagree with that. And Lyme and I podcasted on it on our way back from New York uh, last year from the national show, but it's pretty stunning. It, it is Nebraska. It's stunning. <laughs> and, and, and Iowa. It's, uh, it, You're not into it? It's the, uh, what, the corn huskers are here. Look, if you want, <laughs> here's all I'm saying. Here's all I'm saying. If you want to know what a deciduous form looks like. Oh, there we go. Yeah, that's true. I mean, this is the drive. Yeah, that's pretty this good. This is the drive. Because you've got these big, impressive standalone trees. Standalone. Standalone. Yeah. And you've got them themselves. occurring in groups. If you wanted, and this is another interesting thing on some of the Q&As recently on Mirai Live, um, people have been talking about putting together deciduous forests. And they're like, we don't want to follow the same format can you give us some guidance? And it's like, well, hey, we gotta, first of all, to create a beautiful deciduous forest, you've gotta have the inspiration for what is, where is this forest? Where does this exist? What are the elements, factors, and environment that are acting on the form of the forest? And one of the things that you get to see driving across the country, once you get east of the Rockies, it's primarily, not entirely, but it's primarily deciduous in nature. And you see trees accumulating along- Right there. Absolutely. You see river trees accumulating along irrigation ditches or rivers or streams, yep. which breeds an entirely unique form of mixed deciduous forest. The structure of it is unique. The structure of it is different. You see standalone trees that have obviously been out in these singular places by themselves for a very prolonged period of time, carrying a lot of different aesthetics. You see scattered deciduous you see singular deciduous species. You see yeah. that multitude of species uh, in, engaging in a single symbiotic ecosystem. It just, the number of different forests and situations and scenarios you can show in this miniaturized form is extensive. And that's where I really find a lot of the value through the middle portion of the country is just learning about deciduous trees in all of their different scenarios and potential situations we can reflect. There are so there's an endless number of solutions out here. 
Well, just look at where they're accumulating. Yeah. I mean, you have a concentration. Now, a lot of that is man-made because they're obviously farming and stuff. But there's also a lot of species-specific yeah. species specific locations that occur in symbiotic collaborations between very select groups of trees based on availability of water. More than anything else, that seems to be dictating. Notice the oaks are on the high, high point out yep. of the water and you get the willows and you get a lot of the more water uh, Down in loving species in the low low points. Yep. It's just, it's like, it's like magic. It's just music. Well, it's think, compositionally very, very beautiful. Only sad thing is we missed some of the good color. What? We missed some of the good color. Just if it would have been a couple weeks yeah, earlier, yeah, we would have seen Yeah, we're the just colors. a few weeks too late. A few weeks too far behind A few weeks the color. too late. Oh, yeah, I think that cold snap kind of Look at the structure in the top away. of those oaks. Oh, wow. That's just amazing. That's amazing. Those are really good oaks. Go make that in a bonsai tree. People would be like, what the oh, f- what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing, Lime? Your trees don't look like that. <laughs> That's what they'd say. Yeah, they do. And say I saw it on the covered wagon, bringing it hot at you. That's what I, actually my favorite form is that kind of form back there. That my, it's like almost like a spooky branch just crawling away and doing its thing. Like, do you think that? Um, do you think that the deciduous form is nat- that we see typically in bonsai is naturally reflective of the I way don't. deciduous trees grow? I don't. You do? But it, the branches look, you know, I it grew up around oak trees, too. They kind of do this little twist and break. They don't fork perfectly, you know? Some kind of go this way, and they do this weird branch. Are you talking about one of the live oaks from, yeah. like, the Carolinas or something? Yeah, That's yeah. South Carolina. Well, we have them in, in Southern California, too. They do that. They do this, like, weird kind of branch. Like what we saw back there. Yeah. So uh, they're, they're doing the Quercus thing. Yeah. I think that is kind of more what a tree should look like. I mean, they like to do that weird thing. That's what I like in them, I guess. Like these. That is not what we yeah. see in Bonsai. Yeah, I hear you. No, not at all. But do you think that the majority of the deciduous trees that we see are, they look look, look like they would grow? In Bonsai anyways? Oh, yeah, they would look cool. The ones that we've been seeing on the road, right? No, no, no. I'm just saying, do you think the majority of deciduous bonsai that we see look like deciduous trees? I don't. I don't think so. Oh, you don't think so? They, they look very groomed deciduous trees. They look like very pruned? Yeah, very pruned deciduous. You know, uh-huh. not natural from the environment. Yeah. Very like, oh, that was in someone's yard. And Interesting. There should, there should be a light under that tree. Yeah. You know? Huh. Nothing like this. You don't see that. But that's what it looks like, you know? Yeah. The branches doing their thing and looking very, you know. I think that you could very easily say that the deciduous model is still the most unexplored. Well, I don't know. Broadleafed evergreen as well is. I, I we're just starting to get into a point and place and s- space where aesthetically, I think people are ready to start exploring newer forms and the deciduous models. I mean, that's not to say every deciduous tree doesn't look natural as a bonsai, because I think there are, even in Japan, a lot of very natural-looking deciduous trees. I think in the in the eastern United States, deciduous is just such a more common, commonly yeah. practiced. It's, it would be like going to the UK and Europe. And in, in, in England, the number of deciduous trees far outweigh the conifers in terms of species cultivated for bonsai and really high-level 
examples of bonsai. I mean, there are incredible deciduous trees cultivated. And when you start to look at what's happening out of the Czech and Slovenia and uh, Eastern Europe with Maria and what she's doing and and Walter Paul's been working with a community of people there for a long time, but Some, I mean, a lot those, of his trees look like these. Carpinus orientalis are insane. What's up? Yeah, Walter does a lot of that natural kind of look with his deciduous. I yeah. kind of like it. Yeah, you know, he, not, not the traditional like this is how you got to do it. Sure, like, kind of breaks from the mold a lot. Yeah, definitely. I like that a definitely. lot. Definitely, a lot of his deciduous trees are really, yeah, they really get to me. I like them a lot. Yeah, pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I would like to play a lot more with deciduous and just all of the possibilities, but it's so it's so very hard. Yeah, there's a lot. It's incredibly time consumptive yeah. to experiment with aesthetics, which is not like a bad thing at all. It's just, it just taps into a different part of your bonsai practice. Well, also, like you have with, 900 trees at the... What's there, that? There's almost 900 trees at Mirai. Yeah. Maybe 850 now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. 850, yeah, right. <laughs> 840, 8, 8, 842. 8, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's hard to, to explore stuff when you have that much going on, you know? Yeah, I want it, though. I do want to play with it because I think the deciduous model has a lot of room, and I think the broadleafed evergreen model has a lot of room. I think technically there are still more techniques. There's still more to understand. There's still more pieces of the puzzle that are missing but i think aesthetically is where the biggest ground and even just going back and talking about creating different deciduous forests yeah that show those environments and those geographic or uh situationally specific things that create what we recognize as the deciduous form or the deciduous forest it's just it's just untouched it's yeah. untouched they're beautiful and I think as far as collected material, the number of radically available, incredibly awesome and monumentally potent species in terms of their potential to actualize incredibly beautiful bonsai on the deciduous side of things in the North American region of the world is largely untapped. I There's mean, so come much. on. You, you said something the other day, uh, maybe a couple months ago. Well, I don't think a lot of people have gone out and utilized collecting some of these trees, throwing them in the ground and and working on, you know, working them from there. Absolutely. We have so much in our woods. You don't really see people go out and get deciduous. No, much. no. At least not out by us. And here's the thing about deciduous is you can sever everything you can sever all the branches like I, although i don't re you know uh, <laughs> you can you yeah. can you can literally cut the roots back on collected material to virtually nothing for a lot of deciduous varieties and they will respond and so you start to say okay i can start with a much larger piece of material yeah as a result i can grow out the branching that i need i can start with just a stump of a trunk base that is 10 times the size of any other piece of bonsai material and in three to five years growing it out in the ground have proportional primary structure set on this thing and ready to refine and move to a bonsai container like the the potential is limitless yeah in what you could you can cut off you can air layer you can cut it you could air layer like yeah. i'm looking at some of the apple orchards around Mariah and i'm thinking i'm gonna see if they'll just let me air layer some of these 
branches that they've been training for forever yeah. to be able to make the fruit e easy to harvest has created insane forms in that. I'm just going to ask if I can go air layer them or you think about you can cut off a cutting the size of your thigh off of a weeping willow or a tamarisk and throw it in water and, and it will boom. root. It's just, I mean, come on. I love the willow tree too. Yeah. My first elementary school was willow elementary. Oh really? Yeah. We had a big nice. giant willow tree out front. Nice. Yeah. I've got, I've got a lot of love for willows as well. I would put one in the ground if it wouldn't destroy my septic system. <laughs> septic system and anything that's and anywhere anything near else. It. Yeah. Any water line, any foundation, yeah, they're destructive. Get it away from everything and it's okay. <laughs> I mean, I, when you look at, and even when you look at some of the, just just taking Cornus for an example, and the the variability of species of Cornus that grows across North America, dogwoods are iconic in so many areas, so delicate in their fruit uh, or their flower formation, and variable in the color and the quantity wonderful in their behavior, very nuanced and unique. If somebody wants to explore, Cornus is a beautiful one. I, I think dogwood is one of the most underutilized species. You see I, very few Cornus ever created in Japan, although it exists, it is not common. And what a monster in terms of a bone size species to, to pursue and utilize. I've been or, hunting them down like crazy. What's that? Dogwoods. My neighbors, I've been going around to my neighbors. I have permission from a couple of my neighbors to air layer branches off. Absolutely. They were like, you want to what? I explained to them what I'm doing and they're like, you can take a branch all you want. Oh man. Or, <laughs> or, or how about an Eastern redbud? Oh, a Circus. Yeah, yeah, yeah like, I have in my front yard. I mean, these are, they grow fast. They've yeah. got beautiful bark, wonderful branching. The leaves will reduce, although not as much as we would like. It's still to capture that flowering moment in the early spring as an early spring, very unique early spring flowering. I mean, when I think about all of the species that you can utilize for the different timings of year where they're gonna behave for you, or how about even just air layering native crab apple or ornamental crab apples that have been grown in the ground. I mean, I've got five different varieties of Japanese maples that I've planted at Mirai that I'm gonna start air layering and creating forests off of yeah. just from landscape pieces that had nothing you, you can creatively prune them while they're in your landscape and once a branch gets to a really interesting shape or form or size air layer it off yeah. and it's it doesn't do anything to that landscape piece and you have an incredible piece of bonsai i've got a shishigashira maple which take forever to thicken that i have probably 10 air layers that are going to come off of it next year that are going to be phenomenal yeah and i don't see people doing that like, huh. like it's just it's out there it's for you deciduous trees growing a full-size trident maple in your landscape and then air layering off uh turtleback forms raft style forms clump style forms or singular trunk forms why wouldn't you yeah you just gave me an idea with one of the uh maples that randy gave me oh for sure <laughs> i mean when you think about it and people think air layering like they're going to do some like small little pinky size thing no right? way i'm talking about go get the big stuff uh yeah we're low on gas i think we can get to des moines though yeah we just hit a quarter tank yeah if i this is this is literally like the this is the call to action to a Johnny Appleseed type figure, but instead of walking the country planting apples, you're walking the country making air layers of all different conceptual shapes, 
forms and sizes on deciduous trees. Heck yeah, that would be sexy. Yeah, I mean, but think about it. You don't have to, you don't have to just air layer a single trunk. You no. can air layer it at the base of branches that forms a clump. You can you can air layer diagonally across yeah. the, the piece instead of straight across and make a massive base. You can air layer linear, linearly along that piece and form a ra very legitimate raft. That's what I'm doing with my, I got a, what is it, a elm? I got a Chinese elm probably 10, eight years ago or something like that. It was one of the first trees I bought. Uh -huh. and it was just a little, you know, a little twig. <laughs> Put it in the ground. I was like, I'm just going to let it get big. And then I'll get, I'll make a, a bonsai from it. And as it got bigger, I'm like, oh, look, I can make like five bonsais from it. I'll just air layer the, each year and just make a new tree from different sections of it. Yeah. And, that's, and this year it's got air layers going. Yeah, air layering is such an empowering technique. It's awesome. And, and quite honestly, like. Awesome technique. Quite honestly, air layering is not the most air layering is not the most applicable technique to conifers. No. You know, like when you think about air layering, really it's not, it's not the best way yeah. to be able to cultivate the highest level coniferous material. But when you look at the deciduous model, Gosh, it's, it's so literally great. the way in my mind, if I had to, if they said, look, you can use one technique to create all of your deciduous material it's going to be air layering for me. Yeah. It's going to be air layering. If you're going to use one technique to take, to create all of your coniferous material, it's going to be collecting. It's going to yeah. be the collecting technique. And if they say, well, that's not a technique, take that off. Then I'm going to grow all of my conifers from seeds where I have control of the root system. Ah. Right. Yep. I mean, it just makes sense. Yeah. It just makes sense if you're doing conifers from the very best possible methodology and you only have one. But when you look at the power of air layering with deciduous, there is so much room. There's like such an exponential ca capacity for growth and exploration inside of the deciduous model in any bonsai culture, but particularly in North America, where we have, I think, gone so hard on the conifer level and developed and, and really elevated the level of our coniferous bonsai but now the deciduous and now the broadleafed evergreen needs a lot of love and attention. And this comes back in the broadleafed evergreen form when we start looking at, obviously uh, the oaks are, are a lead in for me, but we've got so many native varieties of Eliagnus that have never been utilized as a bonsai. And one of the, one of the varieties of broadleafs that I find to be truly spectacular that you don't see a lot of really well done bonsai is the camellia. Huh. I mean, there's a gajillion varieties of camellia. Yeah, I don't have any. And camellia will plate up at the oh. base incredibly well. I mean, bit a big, beautiful buttressing base, smooth trunk, which is very difficult to take a bigger specimen and chop it down because you are going to have scars that are very difficult to heal. But camellia coming out of the urban environment, um, boxwood coming out of the urban environment urban yamadori absolutely for life. some of Woo. the best boxwood i've ever seen yeah dude. have come out of the urban environment just always massive monsters if you just watch craigslist all the time people are come take these boxwoods from yep. me always find them if yep. you live in a city area and i think you. even better than watching craigslist is just going and communicating with local landscapers saying oh that hey, too yeah if, if you have anything, we'll, we'll pay you. Cause they're just, they're getting paid to take it out. 
yep. and then they're going to take it to the dump and have to pay to take it to a dump or discard it or burn it. Yep. If if now all of a sudden they're getting hit on both sides, paid to take it out and paid to get rid of it. They're going to love you. They're going to love you. you. Yep. You're they're going to love a phone call. you. And it, this is how you can really start to step into some wonderfully old established urban Yamadori. I mean, yeah. some of the stuff that has been seen coming out of, I, I think this is honestly where when you look at some of the olive um, bonsai that are that are now um, grown in North America, whether they were grown as a crop in an olive orchard and have come out just to get those big, massive olives apart, when you shatter those things, what's left behind is a really close representation of a collected olive out of Europe, yet it came out of a domesticated environment. It's the the possibilities when you really open your eyes and look around are literally endless. Yeah, they endless. are. Yeah, they are. Sagebrush. Yeah, that, that's sagebrush. Like, you know, going to Australia actually opened my eyes to rethinking, oh, wait, maybe there's other stuff than our I just never thought about using. You know, I was, uh, it looked like a Kunzi, I think it was the other day. I was out by the beach. Uh, took Newton out to the sand dunes down there. We're near Coos Bay. And the foliage on this thing looked just like a, I don't know what it was. I got to figure out what it is. I took photos. But it looked just like a Kunzia. Yeah. I was like, oh, maybe we yeah. could do some of that. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I just like, when we start talking like this, I get so revved up because <laughs> you recognize that the if you could if you could do bonsai every day for the rest of your life you're gonna die with a list that's longer than the list that you started with in terms of things <laughs> that you wanted to accomplish i'm learning to hone that's just, doing it every yeah. day you're yeah. you're you're going to come up with more that you want to do as a result of having done bonsai so much you're actually going to want to do more than you ever could have when you first started and had everything to start doing yeah. That's fascinating to me. I don't know any other art form that's that that has that kind of potential. And and the, and the best part about it is it really is a manipulation or a a uh, a born in a built in desire to look from a different angle at things that we take for granted on a daily basis, which is all of the plant material that exists around us and seeing people want and utilize sagebrush which i historically have grown up around in colorado thinking it was the worst thing in the world it was just something to trip on and now watching how that is capable of being utilized in the bonsai art form and the merits of sagebrush and really this came from seeing some of the mediterranean varieties like heather or rosemary or thyme be utilized in Spain and England, or uh, excuse me, Spain and Italy and some of France, some of these other countries. And then, like you said, going to Australia and seeing them utilize Beccia, yeah. which Beccia is basically just, uh, it's it's literally a, a neighbor to sagebrush in terms of the wood structure, vascular structure and behavior of it. You know what, we just stepped, I mean, I was a kid, I just stepped on sage. Now I go out and I'm like, oh, you know what, that actually does look like that could be a really cool bonsai if that was thrown in a pot. Yeah. And you know what state has more species that would be ideal for bonsai than any other state? Of sage? No, just bonsai of, species in oh, general. Of what? <clears throat> if you just had to guess. 
had more species. More ideal species for bonsai than any other state. I'd probably say us, Oregon. Ooh, interesting. I was going to say California. Yeah. Oregon, California. I was going to say yeah. California. California particularly because I think that the the approach to bonsai in California became so so narrow, so focused on juniper. Just, just yeah, juniper and pine yeah. and a few deciduous trees, elms, liquid ambers, pomegranates, olives. But when you look around the California landscape, just the native pines of California are of exponential potential. The number of native oak species that have never been used in bonsai in California, unbelievable. But then you look at all of the Mediterranean varieties, like you're talking about going out to the Oregon coast and you're seeing something that looks very much like Kunzia in Australia. Yeah. Think about the California coastline. All up and down it. I mean, it's ridiculous. Think about the fact that nobody had used Cypress in California up until just recently. 10, 15, 20 years ago. And even yeah. then not really used it in a big way. Think about the fact that the Monterey pine, how many Monterey pine bones have you ever seen? Not many. No. Think about the shore pine that extends. Think about the Bishop pine that yeah. exists down there. When you get into the redwoods, you also have a whole ecosystem around that. That includes Arbutus, which is incredible. There's Buckeye, which is also, although largely very interesting. You've got uh, Madrone all over the place. You've yeah. got Manzanita varieties that nobody's worked out. Manzanita's that are very, very possible and capable of being collected. Beautiful bark. This is a broadleafed evergreen of, uh, I mean, cataclysmic proportions, a blood red trunk, hard, hard, durable, resin injected deadwood. Beautiful, drought beautiful wood. tolerant flowers and fruits. Go yep. find me something more desirable in the world for a bonsai specimen. Yeah, they're, they're just gorgeous trees. Gor gorgeous, gorgeous. Well, there's shrubs out there. Yeah, I, sh I mean, sure. Yeah, they look I mean, like it doesn't matter. It doesn't gosh, matter what they, they are. What so they offer, good. what they offer us in bonsai is all that I really care about. Yep. And it's, and it's just right there. It's right there for the taking. I mean, if you think about Oregon, think about Oregon in terms of the domesticated farming and cultivation. Have you ever seen a hazelnut tree? Have you ever looked at a hazelnut tree? I've looked at them. I've never seen one as a bonsai. I mean, they have gigantic leaves, but imagine a tree in full fruit as a bonsai defoliated. Yeah. Uh, just just wow. a radical, radical hazelnut, chestnuts. Although chestnuts do historically have some disease issues across the country, which is why we don't see them natively anymore. In bonsai cultivation, we can potentially head that off. Oh, man. I love this discussion. You know what it makes me feel? It makes me feel like we're not even close. Well, that's, yeah, that's You funny. know what I stumbled across the other day? I do not. I stumbled across the most beautiful serendipitous layout of dwarf Alberta spruce at a nursery. Really? I had, there was a big massive one in the back. There were two intermediate ones. There were three small ones in one gallon containers. And then there was a flat of dwarf Alberta spruce seedlings. Wow. It was like, it was literally like somebody punched, punched me in the face. Like, <laughs> like the bonsai gods were like, Hey, Hey, see this. Hey, see this. Yeah. We just gave you a generational appropriate 
lineup of dwarf Alberta spruce to now play with and work out this species that seems to be a real quandary for a lot of people. Huh. And I was like, ah, shoot, okay, I guess I got to do this. Think about all of the cherry trees across the country that would make beautiful bonsai. Oh, God, they're so beautiful. God, they're gorgeous. Yeah. And those are always in people's yards, too. Hey, a everybody. Pear. Everybody. Be, be more creative and open with what we do with bonsai. For crying out loud. Be we've on the got, lookout. We've got a wonderful palette at our fingertips. We've got so much room to grow and explore. I feel like this always happens when we drive the wagon across the country. You realize how big North America is and you're just like, it's holy smokes, we haven't really even done anything yet. It's huge. We haven't even done anything yet. Absolutely huge. Mahogany. Mahogany's yeah. another one. Huge. Figuring out mahogany. Grease brush. I don't even, I've never even seen a mahogany tree. You've never seen a mahogany? I don't think I have. A mountain mahogany? Oh. A mountain mahogany is one of the most magical trees that exists in North America. I probably have seen it. I just don't, I haven't, I wasn't conscious. They are so incredibly uh, impressive. Wow. So incredibly impressive. I mean, potentia. Potentia as a true blue alpine ground cover is one of the most unique and interesting deciduous forms I've ever seen. Huh. Blueberries, huh. native blueberries, incredible. <laughs> do they have quirks? Absolutely. Can you do it and make them a wonderful bonsai? Without a doubt, blueberry can be phenomenal. I saw one of the most impressive blueberries uh, that's ready to become a bonsai. It's just out of collection uh, a year at Pierre's house. Oh, they um, they have yeah. blue, wild blueberry up Incredible there. Incredible wild blueberry up in northern, uh, up in Canada and wow. North America. A cranberry as just a bog, really water hardy. Um, swamp rose, red maple from down in the southeastern United States. Phenomenal. And I know people do play with those. And there's some nuances there that haven't been worked out. But even just thinking about a rambling rose or a running rose or a creeping rose and being able to utilize that greater vigor that a creeping rose has to be able to expand. When you think about limitations of rose, just as a bonsai, I think rose can be utilized as a bonsai, but the problem with rose is a lot of them in their hybridization have really bit become very weak and very difficult to cultivate over the long term. Um, the proportions are very large. And when you get into these vining roses, you start to get a tree that naturally has to be able to move water greater distances across its tissue to handle that that vining creeping or expanding uh, characteristic and in doing so you have all of the tools typically the leaves are of a smaller proportion the flowers are of a smaller proportion and all of a sudden you've got the magic to make a, a truly incredible species i mean we haven't even dove into the desert varieties which i think the desert is the most unexplored lowly utilized of all ecosystems in the world to create bonsai specimens, although they're not gonna adhere to necessarily the traditional model, they may, but the mesquite, little different watering just, just mesquite, maybe, yeah. maybe. I mean, how everybody wants a tree you can grow indoors and not water very often. Boom, go to the desert. Yeah, there you go. Go find a species in the desert. That's your, that's your answer to that yeah. entire problem. Never even thought about that. Yep. 
Yep. That is what they all want. I'm telling you, this is what driving the covered wagon does on day two. On day one, <laughs> it's just like, blah. <laughs> Brain on, fart. On day, two, on day two, it's like, I'm rested. I'm fed. The anxiety is gone. And now we have this whole continent ahead of us that we've got to drive. Boom, let's get it on. Let's figure out bonsai on that next level. Well, we're pretty far across the country already, too. Huh? We're pretty into it now. Yeah, we're deep. We're deep into it now. We're in the heartland of the Midwest. Iowa, how are you doing? Hi, Iowa. Good night, Nebraska. Yeah, good night, Nebraska. And it's about time, Lime. We're 20 miles away from an absolute... Meat fest. Yeah, carnage. Just carnage. It'll be the first meal of the day and the only meal necessary <laughs> because that's how the covered wagon rolls. I yeah. challenge anybody on their drives across the country to limit themselves to eating only when they find something specific that they covet and value because not having eaten the entire day is going to make this barbecue, which already, again, a triple crown winner in the state of Iowa, very legitimate accolades and the reputation to back up what's sure to be a very orgasmic meal. But beyond that, the fact that I have not eaten is going to take that to a level that may not be a level you can reach unless you take on this kind of a challenge. I value <laughs> it. I challenge all of you. Find your own way to get across the country and make it enjoyable. Enjoy the expansive opportunity that's present and utilize it as fuel to motivate you. It's what we do. It's how we roll. Yeah. And, and yeah, enjoy the time. Uh, let yourself just kind of covered wagon doing what we do. Yep. We'll talk to you guys next time around. Peace. Signing off.